21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. I believe that the key ingredients or the formula, if you will, to selling and the role that relationship intelligence and that relationships play in selling is actually quite, it's quite universal and it's constant. I think the, the way you go about uh, building relationships and the, the mechanics and the steps and the route that you take to build relationships is different by region and it's very much influenced by culture and situation. It's really about both understanding that there, there's kind of, there's a way to build relationships and there's a way to do selling and that's sort of universal. But then as you walk into a different meeting, a different room, a different country, different city, you have to then understand that context and adjust your approach accordingly. Uh, that's, that's been my, my, my experience. When you say a situation, so culture and situation, what do you mean for the situation part, for the context part? Well, when you're, uh, you know, again, depending on the situation, I think appreciating both uh, if you're in a room or in a meeting or you're working on an opportunity, you know, you have the normal steps that you take to understand uh, the customer's pain points, what are the their organizational objectives that they're trying to accomplish understanding the roles that different individuals uh, in a situation may play and understanding then the relationship dynamics across those individuals within their uh, within their organization and again there's some you know asking those questions again is a universal language I think as uh, salespeople or business people that we speak but appreciating that in different cultures, uh, the way those relationships and those dynamics play out are different. And I'm by by no means some sort of a cultural expert on different cultures, but you recognize that just because the approach that you may have taken in in Chicago, you, if you are in uh, Zagreb, the, the the approach you may take is much needs to be different, right? You need to be aware and situationally astute and at least recognize that you probably may need to have some nuance to your approach. What would be the steps, universal steps or first steps or steps on meta level 10 on abstract level for for entrepreneurs where to start for entrepreneurs that want to start business abroad so do they need to google something go to cia government <laughs> sites or yeah i think if you are going to uh try to do business outside of the united states abroad as you say uh first you need to do some history you know you need to do, you need to do some research and some history right uh, you know, you're in you know, Zagreb, which I've been to, and you need to understand the history of Croatia and then the history of the former Yugoslavia. And you need to understand those things, not that they will ever come up in the meeting. But if 
you know, oftentimes, you know, in different parts of the world, in the former Yugoslavia or Eastern and Central Europe, you know, where which countries people come from and how they interact with each other sometimes play a role in the dynamics of meetings, right? They don't always play a role, but they sometimes do. And there'll be references often made in discussion or offhand or whatever the case is. And you need to be able to appreciate that as salespeople or as business people, if you are, you know, in any business setting, you're trying to gather data. You know, we call it discovery these days during a sales process, right? You're trying to learn information and and because you're trying to build a picture of what are the pain points that I can solve, who has the pain points and those sort of uh, aspects. And so that those opportunities, those learning opportunities often come during the informal breaks between formal discussions, for instance. And so if there are informal breaks between formal discussions, whether it's at a coffee break or at a meal or an event or whatever the case is, then you get into sort of the more social uh, discussion. And there, understanding the context of the region is going to be probably pretty important. Otherwise, you'll you'll miss you'll miss a lot, and I sh- I'm sure you can sort of relate to that in Zagreb. Um, if there's people from different Eastern or Central European countries, it's pretty hard to have a discussion for more than 20 minutes from people from different countries before they start talking about the history of their country and where their country came from. And then there's different nuances between those relationships that always surface. And if you haven't done some research, it's all going to go right over your head, or if there's a base level of understanding people would almost expect you have had done. And if you walk in as sort of quote unquote, the uninformed American, you are going to basically step right into the profile people may have assumed about you. And that sometimes can be a hole that you can't dig your way out of, right? Um, because our Americans were often assumed to not have an appreciation for other people's history. And there's a credibility issue that you have if you sort of step right into that profile. So, uh, I'd say the first thing I would suggest to anybody is to do some research, become a become a history student, um, not only of the history, but then also secondly, the current events. Again, depending on the market that you're in or the country that you're in, what's happening uh, today uh, is also really relative. Uh, so understanding both current events as well as history, I think, is, is one of the first things I would do uh, if I was walking into a new market. regarding the history and the heritage and the culture, the differences in uh, individual versus tribe approach, USA versus Europe or some some other continents, it's completely different, isn't it? Yeah, completely different. And it's it's consistently different and it's consistently important. If you if you go to, uh, you know, countries in Africa or certain parts of Africa, understanding the the colonial history as part of the background and the history will help you understand why French is the second language in certain countries and English is, you know, and all that. Understanding that history is, again, relevant for same reasons as I just, as maybe if you're in the former Yugoslavia, right? Or if you go down to Latin America and understand, it's just, it's always important to understand that context and that history because it, it surfaces, it always surfaces. And oftentimes during, as I say, the informal discussions that happen between the formal meetings, 
And those sessions are the times that you really are trying to do your discovery and gather information and collect information. And you will be, uh, you'll be ineffective if you don't understand that history in that context. And regarding understanding, discovering, profiling, there are some soft skills involved in it. I mean, for those entrepreneurs that still want after the history, what's the what's the importance of psychology? So, for example, we have on, on the soft skills side, we have consultative sales from Neil Rackham or some other models. We have personal development as the basis even before the soft skills, not only the hard skills. So from your experience, what would be the, I mean, maybe not ratio, but is it important to to, to study the psychology as well if you want to succeed on some other uh, uh, continents? I, I would suggest having a base level of that sort of uh, psychology to describe it. And there are loads of great material out there uh, to learn from. And there, uh, these, these concepts, they're often quite similar at, you know, kind of a surface level. So I think the base level, you know, if I think about it in a, a U.S. education system, you know, the 101 class is probably pretty similar. When you get to the 200 and the 300 level, you know, and a Neil Rackham may be different than somebody else and somebody else, but you know, the first 20% of a lot of these concepts are pretty similar. And I think learning that and understanding that is important. And oftentimes, for instance, it just comes down to being curious and inquisitive and asking questions. Most people enjoy talking about themselves, if you will, or enjoy answering questions. And so just being you being inquisitive and asking those questions is a great way to uh, go drive that. And, uh, and for me, it's not something that I come by naturally. And so I have to sort of like prepare myself, if you will, to say, okay, I'm going to be at an event or in a dinner or whatever the case is. And I'm going to have to go get outside of my comfort zone and be that person and go ask questions and carry a discussion, and which is not something that I do naturally. And you have to kind of prepare for it, frankly. Let's go to your journey, professional journey. How did you transition from IBM to leading Intro Hive as CEO? Sure. So I uh, I was acquired into IBM in around 2005 or so. So uh, I've been in sales my entire career. My I graduated university in like 1990 and started carrying a quota in 1991. So I've been doing sales my basically my entire career and had worked for two or three companies out of university uh, and and then in 2005 i was a uh, the company i was working for was acquired by ibm and that was a great opportunity at first it was a challenge because i'd worked for smaller companies and ibm was quite big and working in a large organization uh, has challenges you know they move slow they're bureaucratic you know all those sort of things but once I had a switch I flipped, which was become a student of the place. And instead of bristling 
from the bureaucracy or the administration, ask yourself, well, why are they asking me these questions? Or why are they doing it this way? Or why don't they do things differently? Because IBM was a really well-worn company, still is. And so I kind of became a student of that. And when you take that approach and you're working at a place like IBM, and there's, you know, you could replace IBM with a lot of different sort of companies of that profile. It's almost like getting your a master's degree in how to run a software company or a technology company. And uh, and that's how I approached it. And so, and then I got to a point where I felt like I had, you know, completed my degree, if you will. I spent nine years at IBM in two different divisions of IBM. Um, it, 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 it came time to me to sort of go apply my learning, if you will. And so that's what I did. And I ended up at a company called Blackboard, uh, which is a global uh, ed tech company that uh, had been around for 20 years and was making the transition of having on-premise, it's a 20-year-old software company, and they'd gone through the normal transition of any 20-year-old software company from selling licenses that you would then run on servers in your university or on-premise then they moved to selling licenses that they would then run for universities and data centers that Blackboard owned. And then they were just getting ready to make the next step, which is moving to a pure SaaS type of solution, right? The cloud, right? And we were at the cusp of making that switch. And so, and the company was in a bit of a turnaround situation. Um, I won't go through all the details, but Nonetheless, uh, it wasn't in a successful state and we needed to turn it around. And so I was part of a leadership team that took the company from uh, declining business results to actually uh, growing, you know, showing the revenue growth. And we transitioned the business out of the data centers. We had at one point in time, 30 some odd data centers, and we closed those down and moved them to the cloud. And it was a great opportunity for me to basically apply the learnings that I had had previous to, previous in my career, both in sort of from a sales and go-to-market perspective, but also, you know, managing the data centers, which I did. I managed the process of moving, of closing data centers and moving our clients to the cloud. And it was a great, it was a great experience and uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was, it was a success. And so, uh, we ended up, uh, you know, selling that business, and uh, it was it was a great it was a great story for us all. And uh, from there, um, when it became time for me to embark upon my next opportunity and my next adventure, I like like most people, you start reaching out to people that you have in your network. And uh, at IntroHive, uh, one of the largest investors is a private equity firm called PSG. And uh, and I, I happen to have a relationship with a couple of folks there. And so that's how I made the connection to, to Interhive. And uh, what attracted me to Interhive is that we have a great product and the te- technology is awesome. The product works great. Uh, we're working our way through what is the right go-to-market strategy, which is something that I have a ton of experience in. So uh, I felt like the... The, the work that needed to be done at Interhive aligned pretty well with my skill sets. I felt like I could add some value. Uh, that's the first thing. And second thing, the, the, the solution that Interhive provides, the problem that it solves is something that I, as a sales leader, I'm very familiar with, which is how do you take your CRM system and make it more productive? How do you insert relationship intelligence into the sales cycle of your selling function of your organization. And 
that's something that I have a great appreciation for. So I both uh, felt like I could add value to the work that needed to be done at Interhive, as well as it's at its core, I understand the business problem they solve very, very well. So those are those are a couple of the reasons why I came over here. What are the key challenges that organizations face in such transitions and how to overcome them? Where to start? What to read? What to learn? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great question. Um, and for me, it's it's about there's a there's a notion or a concept of uh, you know getting up on the balcony and sort of it's it's about sort of elevating yourself from the problems at hand and try to get a big picture. Uh, some people call it or there's a phrase you know adaptive learning. It's about you know taking a look at the situation and trying to understand. Uh, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? And not just at a tactical level of we need to solve the specific issue, but more sort of zoom out, if you will, and take a look at the whole picture and say, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? And then uh, playing some scenarios, uh, playing it out a little bit and sort of thinking, you know, two and three steps ahead, you know, there's an expression called, you know, playing, you know, playing chess instead of playing checkers, you know, thinking multiple moves ahead and and then then anticipating what are the challenges that you're going to face when you get three moves ahead and are those challenges, uh, can you overcome them and what will you, I often ask myself, what will Lee six months from now wish that Lee had done six months ago and think about and so and I think it's thinking your way through a strategy and approach before you then jump in and try to solve problems. I think it's human as humans, it's human nature that we create, we equate being busy with being productive, right? So I see problems, I see challenges. Okay, my, my, my initial reaction is jump right in and start solving stuff, right? Start doing stuff, start taking action because that feels good, right? I got a problem. And if I'm doing stuff, it feels good that I'd be doing something. But I try to pause. And what I would suggest is that before you jump in and start taking that action, really sort of try to build a bigger picture and a bigger, you know, mental plan of how you see this playing out. And then back your way into therefore, and therefore the first steps I should do are the following. And uh, so I think. Getting that mental picture in your head as a leader is one of the first steps I would recommend in that kind of a situation. And it doesn't have to be an elaborate plan. It starts with just having in your mind's eye, being able to sort of see how this is going to play out and have that vision in your head of how it's going to play out. To me, that's a critical first step. As an entrepreneur, do I need to think maybe even about exit strategy and then go back from exit strategy to the point where I am today and then to, to strategize? First part of the question and second part of the question, I suppose it's not very intelligent to go just with leap of faith. I need to to have some analogs or antilogs to, to analyze, maybe even, maybe even to pay some expert because as an entrepreneur, I, I'm not sure what kind of skill sets do I have. 
you know, the, what are the business objectives you're trying to acquire, uh, uh, achieve? So if, you know, whether you're trying to raise funding um, through different, you know, working your way through the series of funding rounds, instead of, you know, what are the business objectives that you need to be able to put down on paper when you get to that discussion? I think have you know understanding what those business objectives are and then driving towards those is the way that I would think about it. The result of achieving those will then be whatever you know success means for you at that round or that exit, if you will. But I wouldn't you know I wouldn't use sort of the exit as the rallying cry or the funding as the rallying cry. It's the business objective that you're trying to achieve. That to me is you know getting very focused on that. And then getting your whole team, however large your team is, getting them aligned on the same set of objectives. Uh, that's another thing that you see quite often is that uh, people are not aligned and they're not focusing on the same thing. So uh, oftentimes, if you go look at why organizations are successful, oftentimes, almost all the time, you know, key ingredient is that everyone is aligned on the same small set of objectives. And um, we've seen through history, <laughs> that you get a small group of people aligned, working together on the same set of objectives, uh, they can accomplish almost anything. And so uh, that alignment and focus is pretty important. Let's continue with team development. So with your experience in starting and scaling teams, companies, what are some key lessons or principles you've learned that that you would pass on uh, to building entrepreneurs or leaders? Chemistries of teams really matters in my experience. Um, so there are obviously, yeah, having, having people that are intelligent and have sort of the right, um, you know, the right skill sets obviously is key. But then how, how they work together, uh, having people that sort of operate and think of like minds together, that can work uh, respectful of each other, where you can foster sort of healthy tension. I think healthy tension is a positive thing. Uh, unhealthy tension is by definition unhealthy. So it's really, you know, getting the chemistry, uh, you know, I hear some people call it, you know, the no jerk rule, you know, you can't, you know, not having people that, you know, just don't, I don't care how talented they are. And you see this in business, you see this in sports, you know, you can have a super talented individual, but if they just don't get along with other people, if they are just not a great teammate, then they're often, uh, you know, often that's a problem. And so I think, having a team that just is of like-minded. Now there's different ways to operate and I'm not here to say that you all have to work a certain way or work the way that I work. I think teams can do it differently, but teams need to be like-minded in how they work so they can work well together and bring out the best in each other uh, and be able to push each other when they need to push, et cetera. So uh, oftentimes, uh, I don't know that that aspect is appreciated. You know, we look at people's, you know, their resume or their CV, and we see their work background and that checks all the boxes. But the more difficult thing is to understand is their personality a fit. And uh, it's that's, that's a little difficult to assess right out of the gate. You know, you can have a dinner and the dinner could be fine, but you know, it takes time. So engineering a way to, to 
to flush that out, which often means maybe hiring from your network or hiring from people that um, you have an experience with is important. Um, those are, anyway, I, I spend a lot of time focusing on that aspect of it because uh, that's super important. And having good customer intelligence platform is super important as well. So yeah, it is. <laughs> regarding Intro Hive, uh, could you explain what makes uh, it stand out in the market and how, uh, how how it's contributing in business to business uh, revenue? Sure. Um, you know our our sort of reason for being, you know, our raison d'être, I would say that we believe that companies are leaving business on the table because they don't have an appreciation of all of the relationship intelligence that they need between their company and their perspective, their customers or prospective customers. And it's that lack of understanding um, that is either uh, preventing them from business or preventing them from accelerating business. And that what I'm saying there, you know, I think everyone appreciates that. Um, but often what companies have been trying to do is they've been trying to sort of gain those insights uh, through CRM systems and similar kind of systems. And the, you know, the challenge with CRM systems, they're, I mean, they're awesome systems, but they require, you know, the data to be in the system in order for you to get those insights. And even the data that you would put in a CRM system is is often just contact data. Um, and it doesn't really give you the relationship insights that you need to effectively accelerate revenue in all cases. And so what we've done is we've built a technology where we actually take your data and we put it into your CRM. And in addition to just contact data, we're actually showing relationship data and and activity data, so that I can I can make a distinction between somebody, you know, somebody that Lee has met once, and sort of you know think about you know LinkedIn, where I'm connected to five thousand people on LinkedIn, but I'm probably good friends with a hundred of them, right? And I'm probably kind of know another maybe five hundred, right? And there's another couple of thousand that I have no idea who they are, but I'm connected to them. Now, understanding that information as it relates to business opportunities is pretty important. If I'm sitting here today as a sales leader and I'm looking at my business that's forecasted out over the next period of time, understanding whether the relationships I have with the buyers on those deals, are, the, are, the, are those relationships strong or or are they weak? Are those relationships strengthening or are they weakening? What's the trend? And if as a sales leader, if I'm looking at my forecasted business and I see that I have a deal and an opportunity that's forecasted, but my relationship score, my relationship between my team and that company is really low, that's risk. That represents risk because I'm my team thinks we're going to close this deal, but we really don't have any relationships. So it may close or it may not, right? Um, and so understanding the intersection of business opportunity and relationships is really important and conversely if i have companies or clients 
that we have a tremendous amount of relationships and a strong relationship score with, and yet we're not doing a lot of business, that's a business opportunity, right? So relationship, relationship score, relationship intelligence, which is sort of a higher level than contact data, uh, is actually quite critical to uh, both driving revenue and understanding risk to revenue. How are you with customer service? Are, are you US-oriented or globally uh, present? Do you do you even need uh, local reps? Yeah, we we are. Uh, so we're headquartered in Canada. So we're actually a Canadian company, and then we have and we have teams in London, uh, in the UK, in the UK, in the US, and in Canada as our primary employee bases, and then we have. Uh, we have predominantly English-speaking clients at this stage of our growth, right? Um, we're following a pretty typical sort of Western English-based uh, technology growth perspective, as you you know, folks in you know other markets understand, right? So you start with the English-speaking markets and you work your way. So we do have users in you know countries all over the world. Um, the uh, it's getting through the language, and you know, as you appreciate, there's there's translation and then there's localization. You know, there are two different topics when it comes to technology. And so the translation the translation part is fairly easy, you know, touch wood to address. The localization is, is where the complexity comes in. And then as it relates to SaaS or cloud products, you know, the localization also get, then gets into where does the data reside. And so, you know, there's some complexities there that uh, we're, we're working our way through, but we do have users uh, all over the globe. And today, the majority of our customers are in, uh, in English-speaking uh, headquarter markets. Today, we are... Uh, we're operating in, as I said, as I said before, multiple countries. We have users in, I don't know, tens and tens of countries around the world. I, I don't have a number on it. Um, operating primarily in English-speaking markets, but as as you know, with uh, translation, we're able to we're able to support users in you know countries all over the globe. And what we've seen over Interhive's 10 years, we're about a 10-year-old company. Uh, you know, we've seen phenomenal growth year over year over year. Several years we were on various charts that you would read as one of the fastest growing companies in the space. And we continue to see this growth. And from the, an employee count, we've been able to uh, have nice growth with our employee base. Uh, now we have a couple hundred employees. And so what we're seeing is really a, a sort of a pivot to a stage of maturity. You know, companies go through sort of different stages of maturity, just like we do as people from childhood to teenage to adulthood. And so we're working our way through those steps of maturity. And as after you get to a certain size, you start layering in different business processes as you mature. And so we're at that step now, sort of layering in some business process and procedures to support our next wave and our next stage of growth. So it's a really exciting time for us here at Interhive. And the market continues to respond well. and 
if you go back a couple of years where you know, the markets were very, you know, live and I mean, there was a lot of growth everywhere, you know, the people, you know, companies were leveraging a technology like ours to support their growth. Now we're seeing, you know, across, you know, across the globe, some sort of contraction in markets and there's, you know, some focus on budgets and those sort of things. And a different aspect surfaces, which is how can I do more with less? And again, companies want to understand what, where where do we have opportunities of business across our client base? And a great way to find that out is to understand where do you have relationships, and you're not you're not driving as much business as you might want to. Or flip side, if you're uh, you're you're seeing opportunities to do more with less, where are your where could your teams do more? Where are your teams not engaging as they like to? Where do you have performance or productivity opportunities to improve? And Intrahive provides that sort of data for clients. So we're actually uh, it's interesting for us to sort of both play both in a market when things are going really well and people are trying to accelerate revenue, we play a great role there as well as in when you have more uh, you know pressure on uh, the economy and people are trying to do more with less and play we play a great role there so we can we see continued growth as because of those two those two functions From a personal perspective, you know, the things that are really important to me is providing uh, equal learning opportunities for everybody. One of the things that I have seen and have observed over time is that uh, too many too many kids don't have opportunities to learn and stay in school, and the effects of education or lack of education or the quality of their education really can have a significant impact on their ability to become uh, you know, successful adults by whatever definition of success you want to put. And so I've been focused uh, on really closing what we call the academic achievement gap in, uh, in inner cities in the United States. And they're working with an organization on that. Um, and it's been really rewarding. And I think for me, I don't have any sort of uh, <laughs> You know, overblown perception of the impact of the time that I spent with the organization. I I believe when you find something or an area like this that uh, drives you and motivates you, that you probably get more out of it than than the organization you're working with gets from you because it's a it's it's rewarding for you as an individual. Um, and so for me, you know, looking at uh, uh, this youth, if you will, in inner cities in the United States and seeing the impact of a good education both in the school and also what they get and uh, in, in home and their family environment uh, is, an, is a big area of opportunity and I think as a country if we were able to address that or move the needle just a little bit in that area the outcomes and the impact on our society at whole would be phenomenal and I'm not so naive to think that it's an easy solution to solve nor to think that uh, the whatever time I spend uh, on it has you know a big effect on anything, but I definitely see it as an area that uh, is quite uh, is quite compelling for me. I get very uh, excited about it, and when I'm not working, there's an area that I spend a lot of time on. Uh, yeah, so just in in closing, you know, the, I didn't mention it before, but the, the organization I've been working with uh, in Chicago called the Black Star Project is something. If you're interested in closing the academic 
achievement gap in inner cities in the United States, there's a great organization to take a look at. A lot of best practices there. As it relates to Interhive and really improving the relationship intelligence and your ability to harness the relationships that your company may have, uh, to take a look at our website, interhive.com. We've just launched a brand new uh, relationship intelligence platform. We call it the CIQ, Customer Intelligence uh, IQ, if you will. And what we're seeing is companies around the globe are harnessing this, this, this relationship intelligence, this relationship capital that their company has, but they're not taking advantage of. And once you figure out how to harness it, you can actually use it to drive your business results. So it's a fantastic opportunity for companies. Uh, so please take a look. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Imagine a space where triumphs, trials, and tales of entrepreneurship come alive. Welcome to the 21st Century Entrepreneurship Podcast, a gold awarded journey hosted by Martin Piskorik, connecting with listeners in 95 countries and ranking in the top 0.5% of all podcasts. Join our exclusive community, elevate your perspective, and embark on the path to success.